you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29, and put a marker there, and then flip over to Matthew chapter 5. Genesis 29, and then Matthew chapter 5. For several weeks now, we have been in a series where we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a blessing. It has also been quite a challenge, and we're in some ways in a series that is in t- inside of a series. As for the last several weeks, we have been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically, right now, we're looking at the Beatitudes. And it is in this section of Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus is really giving His first sort of official words, His first words to His disciples. And He's saying, look, if you're going to follow Me, this is what your life must look like. You must have these certain things going on within your your life. And so, uh, for the last three or four weeks, we have been looking at these Eight little succinct sentences, yet they're so packed full of stuff, and they are challenging, and they are life-giving, and they help to lead us to a place where our lives are, are, are closer to God. And of course, as Jesus is speaking this, He's not directing His words at this point toward unbelievers. His words during the Sermon on the Mount are directed to those who are His followers, are His disciples, and and they matter to us as well, especially if we call ourselves followers of Jesus. If we consider ourselves to be His disciples, then these words matter not just to them, but they they matter to us as well. He's talking about discipleship. Now, you probably remember what it was like, or, or, or you know someone who is kind of like this, but you remember what it was like when you begin the journey of the discipleship process. You know, when you decide, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus, I, I've committed my life to Him, I'm, you know, I'm His person, I'm His man, or I'm His woman, you know, we kind of come to Jesus kind of raw, kind of rough, where we are. You know, a lot of times we're coming out of a, 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 a life that was, rough and we made choices that were not so great okay but we've found that grace and now it's like okay now i got to figure out how to follow him i have to figure out how my life is now going to be going forward and you know when we first come to jesus a lot of times you know we begin we're kind of we're kind of self-centered we're kind of self-involved because before we gave our life to jesus who more than likely was number one it was us it was Me, I was concerned about my pleasure. I was concerned about my things, the things that mattered most to me. I was self-involved. But then you move in and you you realize Jesus is calling us to more. And He says, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And what that is about is recognizing, okay, this isn't about me. And I've got some things in my life that have gotten me in the shape that I'm in. And this is about acknowledging those things. It's about recognizing that sin in my life and confessing it before Jesus. And then 
we move from there. And you'll remember, as we said a couple of weeks ago, these are not just sort of standalone sentences. Whatever one you're kind of at is, is helping you to get to the next level. It's helping you take a further step deeper into discipleship, deeper into, into following Jesus. So we, we move from, from, from confessing our sins to being sorrowful over our sins. Okay, because as we said, you know, it's one thing to acknowledge sin, but it's another thing to feel sorry about sin, right? Remember how we talked about the story of the, the husband who was having the affair, and he fully acknowledged that he was wrong in having an affair, but he didn't feel any remorse about it. You remember that? It is completely possible to acknowledge sin in our lives, yet not feel sorry for it. And that's why Jesus, he's pulling us deeper into the process. Not just confessing your sin, but blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this is where we're, you know, we mourn over, over different things. We certainly mourn in times of loss and, and sorrow and heartache. But what this is really talking about is this is mourning over our sin. Mourning over those things that have, have separated us from God. And then he draws us deeper as mourning then turns to repentance. As he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. You know, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, you know, we're kind of like those, those wild horses. They're strong-willed and they want to do their own thing. But we have to become meek. And what that means is that strength, that, that, that wildness of who we are has to be tamed. And so we move from confessing our sin to mourning over our sin to a place where we say, okay, Lord, this is no longer about me. This is about you. It is not my will. Not my will, but your will. Not what I want. Not what I want, but what you want. And so we turn from ourselves. We, we repent and we, we submit to God. And now today, today we make the summit attempt. And we, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago where we said, you can think of the, the Beatitudes as sort of a, a, a mountain, sort of a climb that you make, you know, I'm grateful to a guy named Tim Woodruff who who uh, who kind of gave me this description of uh, of these beatitudes. And with any journey, there's always going to be hazards. With any trek, any summit, any of that stuff, there's always going to be danger. And that's especially true for today. But it's today we begin to make our summit attempt. But it starts at the bottom with that being poor in spirit. And it's once we've done that, then we can move to the next one. Blessed are those who mourn, not just recognizing, but sorrowful for my sin. And that takes us into not my will, but yours. And that leads us to the place where we are right now, where we're trying to make that, that summit attempt. Now, I don't climb mountains, but I've watched a lot of National Geographic. And I've seen, you know, Expedition Everest and all of those things. And what they always tell you is that the most dangerous part of the climb is the summit. Okay? Because it gets treacherous up there. And usually the oxygen levels are much lower than, than down at, at sea level. Okay? But not only that, if you step to the right, guess what? You're going to fall down and be dead. Okay? You're going to die. Okay? So you've got to be careful. And that's kind of 
where we are on the mountain. We're, we're, we're making our summit of tempt where Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, or they will be filled. And as we said a couple of weeks ago, as you, as you think of these Beatitudes as this, this mountain summit, it's those first four that sort of take us into the presence of God. And it's once we get there that, that God has someone that, that He can use. He has someone who is pliable. Someone who's acknowledged that, that they are at the end of the rope and that they must have Jesus in their life. And now we're there, we're in the presence of God and what we need more than anything is God. What we should long for more than anything else is God. And now, now we're ready to begin the descent back down into daily life and as we, we, we deal with one another. Well, just about every single person I know is passionate about something. Is that true for you as well? That everybody you know, for the most part, is passionate about something? No matter what it is. I mean, we've got all kinds of passions. You know, there are some that love to cook. There are some that are passionate about their careers. There are some that are passionate about about sports, there are some that are passionate about, about fishing or shopping or, or sewing or, or cooking, you know, whatever it is, we know people, we know people that are passionate about things, okay? I have things in my life that I am passionate about, okay? Just as you have things in your life that you're passionate about, and chances are your friends know what those things are. And sometimes, you know, they'll bring them up and, you know, your eyes light up because that, you know, that's kind of right in your wheelhouse. That kind of, that cranks your tractor and you want to talk about it, okay? Your eyes light up. Or it could be you're that person that when we see you, we don't bring it up because we don't want to get stuck in a conversation for four hours, okay? It might be that kind of thing because we know, we know you're passionate about it, okay? I have things that are, are, are like that in that are in my life. But you know what's, what's different is when you come across someone who is a very passionate person and it becomes obvious very early on that the thing that they are most passionate about in their life is their relationship with God. You ever come across somebody like that? Correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes it's like you don't know how to deal with somebody like that. That... I mean, that's first and foremost, there's no easing into this thing, and it's obvious right up front that what they are most passionate about is God and their relationship with, with Jesus Christ. You see, and that's what this, this fourth beatitude is about. When Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. That's what this is about. This is what Jesus is calling us to. The message puts it this way. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for God. He's the food and the drink and the best meal that you will ever eat. Now then, it's one thing to, to know about God, right? And a lot of us do. We know about God. There are a lot of people that know about God. Even people that don't go to church, a lot of people know about God. Okay, and you know, it's one thing to know a lot about the Bible. You know, hey, 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. 
There's debate over which books, you know, are kind of weird, maybe shouldn't be in there. You know, we know who wrote the books, and we can talk about those. You know, we know what the story's about. We know the creation story, and we can know about the Exodus story. We know about people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We know about Moses. We know about people like Joseph. We know about the prophets who foretold the coming of Jesus. We know about Esther who, who became this sort of this queen of, of destiny to, to save her people. We know the story and the, the heartbreak and the tragedy of the book of Job. We roll on into the New Testament and we know about Jesus. We know about His miracles and the people that, that He came in contact with and the, the lives that He touched. And we know that in the end, if we give our lives to Jesus, then there is resurrection life available to us. Now then, those are great things and we must know those things but this beatitude is not about what we know. This beatitude is about what we feel. Are we hungering? Are we thirsting after God? Welcome to the fourth beatitude. And it's not an easy one. But have any of these been easy? Because I don't think they are. I can't look at any one of these and think, that one, I got that one nailed. That one's no problem. I'm good. Don't need a sermon on that one. I look at every single one of these and I realize, yep, uh, no, stink at that one. Yep, no, no, not good at that one. Uh, that one, well, I'm better than that one. Yeah, I'm better than you than that one, but not great. Uh, you know, that's kind of how I am when I look at these things, okay? I realize when I look at these Beatitudes, I don't have it together. But I realize that they're calling me deeper. They're calling me into a, a, a deeper relationship and a deeper and a closer walk with Jesus. And so when Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, He's raising the bar. And He's saying this this, as you, as you come into the presence of God, to get to the presence of God, that has to be first and foremost. If we're going to be the people that God wants us to be, we must hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. Are you with me? Right. And it's easy, right? It's easy to make our first passion God and His righteousness, right? Everybody got this one? I can sit down. Do we need to keep going? Well, even if you don't, I need to for me, because I don't have this one. There's a story in Genesis 29, and it's kind of a weird story. It's kind of funny how things happen. There's sort of some injustice there. But it's, it's in this story, in, in Genesis 29, that I think we can gain some understanding about this beatitude. I think when we look at this story, we realize that it illustrates our journey with God. It illustrates our faith in God and our love for God and our relationship to God. And there's, there's, there's really there, there, there's four characters in this story. We're really going to focus on, on, on three of them. Let me sort of give you the backstory of Genesis 29 because we don't have a lot of time to just read through it. The story goes is that Jacob is the deceiver, and he has deceived his brother. 
He has stolen the birthright. He's stolen the blessing. And Esau, of course, is not happy about it. And so he has to flee. And so Jacob's mother says, go to Laban's house. And Laban is her brother. You go there. There'll be sanctuary. You'll be safe. You'll be taken care of. You go there and, and, and everything will be fine. You tell him, you know, tell him who you are. And he'll provide a place for you to stay. And he will, he will protect you. And so he does. He begins making his way to, to the house of Laban. And he gets into that territory, and he comes upon a well, and it's kind of the, 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 the middle of the day, and there are some shepherds that are watering their sheep, and, and Jacob gets there, and he says, hey, whose place is this? And hey, it's Laban's, okay, you know, that's kind of the place I'm looking for. And he says, well, you know, it's, it's the middle of the day, I mean, it's, it's, it's daylight hours, why aren't you watering your sheep? And one of the other shepherds says, well, you know, the way we do it here is we wait for everybody to get here at one time, and then we just kind of... We water them all together. We're still waiting. And it says at, at, at that time, they looked up and they see another shepherd coming. It's actually a, a shepherdess. It is the daughter of Laban. It is Leah. Verse 9 says that while he was still speaking, Rachel came up with her father's sheep, for she kept them. And so she arrives on the scene. She arrives there at the at the well, and they're fixing to water the sheep, and then something happens. Jacob sees Rachel, and he is absolutely smitten with her. Her beauty is just overwhelming to him. You ever have that happen? Yep yeah, 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 is the right answer, guys, by the way. <laughs> That's the right answer. Let me help you with that one. Okay. But he sees her and he is overwhelmed by her beauty. So much so, he greets her with a customary kiss and then begins to weep over her beauty. It's a little weird. But it reminds me of, of when I first met Bethany. And that was her reaction when she saw me. You know, it was just, she began to weep, you know. I can say that because she's not here today. And, and she never listens to these things online, so I'm good. Don't tell her. Don't tell her. <laughs> no, but it's like he, he sees her, and he's just moved to tears over, over this, this girl's beauty. She's absolutely, she's absolutely smitten with him. Now then, let's pick up the story in verse 16 of chapter 29. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the oldest was Leah. And the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were lovely. Now then, there's different translations there. Yours might say delicate. Uh, the NIV, I think, says weak. Okay? Uh, not really sure what the actual word there is, but what they're trying to convey is that Leah is getting old. Okay? She's in danger of, of becoming an old maid. Okay? And so... You know, that's a very important point in the story, okay? But Rachel was graceful and beautiful. We already know that because Jacob's already cried over her. Verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. So he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now that's a big commitment, is it not? I mean, son-in-laws, how many of us went to our father-in-laws and said, hey, I'll serve you. I will work for you for seven years. 
if you will allow me to marry your daughter. Anybody say that? Nobody said that? Good, we're in good, I'm in good company then because I didn't say that either. But he says, I will work for you for seven years. And he says, well, it's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And then watch this verse right here, verse 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of what? Because of the, say it loud, the love that he had for her. Now then, I, I, I do a number of weddings, and because of that, I have a number of ceremonies that I use. And I have one particular ceremony where I, I use this verse, and I tell the story of, of Jacob's commitment and his love and weeping for Rachel and all of this. And I always point out this verse, that he loved her so much that, that, that you know, he was willing to work and do whatever he had to, to to gain her hand. And even though it was probably some hardship in there, that because his love was so great, you know, he, he was willing to do it. He was able to do it. It seemed like just a, a few days to him. Do you know why that is? Because Jacob had a passion for Rachel. Do you see it? Jacob has a passion for Rachel. That is the only way, that, to, to me anyway, that's the only explanation that he can look back and say, you know what? I'm happy to have done it. Because look what, look what I gained in the end. I gained Rachel. I'm happy to, to serve this time. It's nothing compared to what I'm going to receive. Now then, here's where the story gets interesting. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife so that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah, and he brought her to Jacob, and he went into her, and Laban gave his maid Zilpha to his daughter Leah to be her maid. When morning came, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you've done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, this is not how it's done in our country, giving the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and then I'll give you the other also, in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did... And he completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel as his wife and a handmaiden. Now there's a lot of things that jump out during this story. First, I think it's really interesting that you've got Jacob who is just, you know, at this point in his life, he's just known as the great deceiver. Okay? And now, you know, the, the, the script has been flipped, and he is on the receiving end of it. I mean, he's kind of getting a, a dose of his own medicine. you got the great deceiver accusing somebody of deceiving him. You know, there's some irony there. You know, how have you done this to me? Why would you deceive me? Yet, that's what his life has been about. Okay? And, and, and even though he's fixing to wrestle with God a few chapters later, and he's going to be turned around, there's still some hints that there's still some deception in his life. But he says, how have you done this? And, you know, and that's a legitimate question. How did that happen? I mean, can you imagine? 
Can you imagine? He wakes up in the morning expecting to see Rachel, and he looks over, and it's Leah. Awkward. You know, I mean, think about it. That's awkward. And we wonder, how could this happen? You know, I, you know, I, you know again, I think about things. I ask questions. I wonder how this worked out. You know, how did they keep Rachel quiet? I don't know. I don't have a clue. How did he slip Leah into the bed? Because you realize this is what this is saying, right? How did he slip Leah into the marriage bed when Rachel was supposed to be there? I don't know. The only thing I can guess or that we can guess is that, that Laban must have taken advantage of, of darkness and probably some strong alcohol. You know, that's the only thing I can gather. But what we do know is that in the morning when Jacob wakes up and he looks over expecting to see Rachel, it's her older sister. And he's saying, what in the world? What has happened? He goes to, to Laban and demands an answer. He says, well, hey, look, it's, this is the custom. We don't give the, we don't give the younger before the, the older. You know, and I can imagine what Jacob's thinking. Well, you know, thanks a lot. You know, I wish you would have told me this. I mean, I had seven years. You know, I, I could have been helping the process along, you know. I could have been introducing her to nice young farmhands, and I'd have been searching on, like, HebrewHunks.com or something like that to try to find her a man. But you wait till right now to tell me. I mean, you just, you see the, you see the craziness of this whole situation. But he receives Rachel as his wife finally. And it's, it's what comes next in verse 30 is maybe one of the most saddest verses in all of Scripture. He takes Rachel as his wife. And then notice this. It says that he loved Rachel more than Leah. Jacob loved Rachel more than than Leah. And that theme is, is, is carried out through the rest of, of their lives. You look down at verse 31, and what does it say? When the Lord saw that Leah was what? Unloved. Because of that, you know, he opens her womb and allows her to have children. And she says in verse 32, she says, Because the Lord has looked on my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Happens again in verse 34. Has another uh, son. And she says, now this time, my husband will be joined to me. Can you hear the desperation in her voice? That's the desperation of a woman who longs to be loved by her husband. She wants to be chased. She wants to be adored. She has children and thinks, maybe now he'll love me. Maybe now, maybe this time. And then there is a horrible scene that takes place in chapter 30 where Leah has to actually hire her husband away for a night. Verse 16 says, When Jacob came in from the field that evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have hired you with my son's mandates. 
Can you imagine that? Wives, can you imagine your husband treating you in such a way? She longs to be cared for. Yet she's not. It says that she was unloved. Now, there's no evidence that Jacob mistreated Leah. Okay, there, there, there's no evidence uh, of that what, whatsoever. I mean, he provided for her. He provided everything that she needed. Okay, he performed every husbandly duty that he was supposed to for her. Okay, there's no evidence that, that he mistreated her. But his passion, his hunger, his affection was for Rachel. He fulfilled his duty to Leah. But his hunger was for Rachel. You see that? You see, and I think this is what a lot of times, this, this story illustrates so many people's relationship and love for God. You see, there are, are many, many times in my faith, in my walk with God, in my walk with Jesus, that my love for God is like Jacob's. Like Jacob's relationship with Leah. Because if I'm going to be totally honest, there are times, you know, it, uh, you know where, where, I, where I do my duty to the kingdom of God. Okay, I go to church and I serve and I keep my commitments. But there's no passion, there's no hunger for God. Have you ever been there? You see, it is quite possible to marry faith but not love her. Does that make sense? By marry faith, I mean have a, a, you know, a relationship with God. It is very possible to marry faith, to give our lives to Jesus and be you know, uh, followers of God, followers of Jesus and His teachings to attend church and to give our money and to do all of these things. It is very possible to do those things. But not love those things as we ought to. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's just duty. It's, it's the, the older son in the prodigal son story. He doesn't stay home because he loves his father. He stays home because he's duty-bound. You see, this is not about, this, this beatitude is not about what we know. It's about what we feel. You know, I said earlier, as, you know, as we make this summit attempt, I mean, there are hazards on the journey. There's two of them that I, that I see in particular, and 
you know, the, the first one is that, you know, there are some people, there are some people that want to skip steps, and by steps I mean beatitudes, the first three beatitudes. You know why? Because they're messy. Okay? They're messy, they're, they're, they're difficult, and they don't particularly like the idea of, of being poor in spirit. They don't like the idea of having to weep over their sins or, or be submissive to God. They want to go straight to, to hunger and, and thirst for God. They want to go straight to the fourth one. You see, and, and people are like that, okay? And, and maybe you're here, and maybe that's you, and you know you can do that, and you'll find yourself full of righteousness, but it's going to be self-righteousness. You see, that's the, the righteousness of the Pharisees. Being filled with God begins at the bottom. Hunger begins with, with emptiness. You see, if, if our discipleship is to to get to the level where we hunger and we thirst for righteousness, it has to start out at the bottom. That's why we, we've said from the beginning, these Beatitudes, they don't just stand alone. One of them sort of pulls you to the next one. You see what I'm saying? It starts at the bottom with me. Okay, I am a sinner. I'm at the end of my rope and I need Jesus, but I can't stay right here. It's one thing to, to acknowledge my sin, but you know what? I need to mourn my sin. Now I need to repent. I need to turn to God and say, God, it's not my will. It is your will. And I want to hunger after you, God. I want to hunger for you. I want you to be the center point of my life. But I cannot skip from the bottom straight up to that one. I cannot be fulfilled. I cannot find righteousness without first acknowledging and mourning over my own sin. You see, if we, we go that way, we'll be full of ourselves and not God. We'll also be full of some other stuff that I can't mention. But that's true. We will become self-righteousness. And so the other danger then is that a lot of times people just want to stop at meekness. You know, submission to God is, is as, far as, as far as they go, and, and when that happens, then their, their faith is, is forever Leah. Meekness leads us to say, not my will but yours, but I don't think that God intended for us to stay right there. You see, to stop right there leaves us at what we ought to do. But hungering and thirsting for God takes us from ought to to want to. God, I want to serve you no matter what. I want to be your man. I want to be your woman. I want to be whatever you need me to be, even though it's going to be difficult, even though it's going to be challenging, not because I ought to do it, because it's the right thing to do, but I want to do it. Because what you've done for me, 
I want to serve you because my passion is for you. And it's here that we find that passion. It's here that we, we find that hunger. See, this, this hunger that Jesus is talking about, it's not, not one hunger uh, among many. It is the hunger. It is a, a ruling hunger, an all-consuming hunger that swallows up all the rest. It's a hunger that is so profound that it could not be beaten out of the disciples. We know from tradition that all of them, with the exception of one, were killed. People that don't believe in something are usually not willing to die for it. Make, does that make sense? Their passion for God, their passion for Jesus is what caused them to welcome death. Remember the story of Polycarp, right? First century believer. Recant. Recant or you're going to die. He's like 96 years old. Recant your faith in Jesus, you're going to die. And he says, Jesus in all my years has never turned his back on me. Why should I turn my back on him? And they said, if you don't, we're going to throw you to the lions. And Polycarp said, call the lions. And they said, look, please recant. We don't want to kill you. He said, do what you got to do. I'm not going to back down from this. Finally, they burned him at the stake. And it didn't kill him. They had to go over and they finally took mercy on him. They ended up stabbing him so he would die. But he would not recant. That is someone who hungers and thirsts for the righteousness of God. It's not easy. I mean, this one is, it is, so, it is so very difficult. And, and here's the thing. Here's something that we have to wrestle with. Okay, And I want every single one of us I want every single person who claims to be a follower of Jesus, I want you to wrestle with this question. In my relationship with God, how often does he feel like Leah? Does that make sense? In my relationship with God, how often does he feel like Leah? That's a tough question, isn't it? That's a, that's a, as our friend George would say, that's a heavy piece. Because it is. Because I know that there are times when my relationship, I love God the way Jacob loved Leah. It's all about duty and doing it because it's the right thing and I ought to be doing it. But then there are times where I do things because I recognize how much has been done for me and that's what motivates me. And it's so much easier to serve then, even when it's difficult. When it's based on love and appreciation for the grace that is, has been given to me. We have to have that hunger for God. In, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, when it was time to, to anoint a new king, Saul was losing the kingdom. David said, or God said, you get David because David is a man after my own heart. Now, that doesn't mean, hey, he's my buddy. I like him a lot. He likes the things I like. You know, you're a man. You're a man after my own heart. It means that David was a man who chased after the heart of God. The psalmist knew it. We sang the words just a few minutes ago. 
As the deer thirst for the water, so my soul longs after you. I thirst for the living God. Are those words we just know? Or are those words we feel? And we have to wrestle with that as well. So here's our growth point. And then I've got one more question. The growth point is this, that true fulfillment comes when we dine at the table of God. True fulfillment comes when what we start with is that hunger for God. And everything else takes care of itself. It's that what Jesus said, Matthew 6.33, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Everything else will fall into place. True satisfaction comes when we dine at the table of God. We hunger and we thirst for God, the things of God. Now then, here's the question. What are you hungering for more than God? Are you hungering for a relationship more than you're hungering for God? If so, you need to get out of that relationship. No questions asked. You need to get out as soon as possible. If you hunger for that relationship more than you hunger for God, you're going to end up in a relationship doing things that are not of God. Okay? If you have uh, other things going on, if you hunger for, uh, uh, for, for sports or for your career or anything else more than you hunger for God, you know what? It might be time to take a step back from those things. We have to hunger for God above all those other things. Are our passions, are, are, they, are, they, are, they, are they lustful? Are they harmful? Do they, do they hurt our, our friends and our families? If that's the first things we're thinking of, And chances are that's where our hunger is. That's where our passion is. And we need to start back at the bottom. Becoming poor in spirit, mourning over our sins, submitting to the, to the will of God. What are you hungering for more than God? Is it school? Is it your career? Is it, a, is it a person? Remember that time when uh, Jesus' mother and brother showed up and they tried to get him to, to come outside and kind of thought he was crazy? And they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here. And you know what he said? He said, who's my mother? Who's my brother? What he was saying is what we're talking about is what's most important. So is there something in your life that you are putting more effort into, more time, more devotion into than your relationship with God? If so, that's what you're hungry for. And you will always, you will always wind up empty. True fulfillment comes when we dine at the table of God. We must be the people who hunger and thirst for righteousness.
And so if there's something else, if there's something that you're, you're eating that is not good, you need to clear that off. You need to let God set that table for you. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what he's calling us to. If we can help you, if we can pray for you, if you've got stuff going on in your life that you don't need in your life, come back. Turn it over to God. Let him heal you. Let Jesus wipe those things away. But don't go away in a kind of a mixed up state. If you've been loving God the way Jacob loved Leah, change that. You know, I often wonder what the relationship would have been had Jacob just gone to Leah and said, hey, look, neither one of us wanted to be in this. Neither one of us asked for this. But you know what? I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do my best to love you the way that I love Rachel. I wonder how that might have changed him. Are you loving God the way Jacob loved Leah? If we can help you, we can pray for you. Why don't you come while we stand? And